There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. The New Statesman. I'm Jeremy Cliff, writer-at-large in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor U.S. in Washington, D.C. And I'm Katie Stallard, senior editor China and Global Affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It's Wednesday, the 24th of August. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today marks six months since Russia launched its all-out attack on Ukraine, and it is also Ukraine's Independence Day. Dear Ukrainians, tomorrow is an important day for all of us. This day is also, unfortunately, important for our enemy. We must realize that tomorrow, repugnant Russian provocations are a possibility and brutal strikes. We'll look at the war so far, and the struggle still to come. We'll also discuss the recent assassination of Daria Dugina, the daughter of the far-right Russian philosopher Alexander Dugin, and take a listener question on what to expect next in Ukraine. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right, uh, Jeremy, thank you for joining us back on the podcast. You wrote a wonderful piece in last week's print issue on six months in the war in Ukraine. So today we're going to be talking about the war so far, about what's still to come, about the crises that Ukraine has overcome and the ones that it is still facing. Let us get right into it. And again, listeners, rather than have two discussion segments today, as we normally do, we are going to spend this whole episode discussing the war in Ukraine. Six months ago, Russia began a war that was widely expected to be over in a matter of days. Six months later, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is still in power, and Russia has not taken Kiev. But there are new challenges. Jeremy, if you could just tell us a bit about how it has become six months, right? How, how Ukraine has managed what I think most people in the world thought was impossible, although perhaps not in Ukraine, and, and which is to get to, to a point half a year later where it's still very much fighting this war and a bit about what you think the largest upcoming hurdles might be. Well, it feels like a very long time ago, doesn't it? That that morning of the 24th of February, six months ago, as we recorded this. And I think many listeners will perhaps remember, especially if they're in Europe, waking up and well, also in the US, waking up and seeing the news that Russia had, as we all feared, um, launched a full-scale attack on Ukraine. And I think it's also worth kind of revisiting some of the assumptions made at that point. I think in a lot of capitals in the West, 
the assumption was that Ukraine would not necessarily hold out that long. It was unclear where Zelensky was and how long he would stay at large. It was unclear what Putin would then do with a vanquished Ukraine. Would he impose a puppet regime? Would he partition the country? Would he do both? And where would he then look to go next? And I think that both shows how far we've come, but also how much a lot of governments and a lot of commentators in the West underestimated Ukraine. You know, if there is one big story of the last six months, it's Ukraine's resilience and resistance, which I think has outstripped the most optimistic predictions outside of the country. I remember I was in Kyiv shortly before the invasion began in January, and the Ukrainians I asked about the scenario in which Russia would attack all said they will regret doing so. They would be crazy to do so. Ukraine will resist. And I have to admit that while I did, I did take seriously the people who were telling me those things, I did wonder how much of it was sort of the bluster you would expect from a country facing almost 200,000 Russian soldiers on its borders at that point. But actually looking back on it, I think they really did know their own country's capacity to fight back. I think in terms of what's happened over those six months, perhaps you can divide the war into three broad phases. There was the first phase, the initial attack, the attempt to encircle Kyiv and the attempt to overthrow the government. We might remember, for example, that long convoy of Russian forces north of the Ukrainian capital that got caught up in a sort of symbol of the failure of that first attack. That then was withdrawn around late March. And then we moved into the phase where Russia focused particularly on taking the whole of the Donbass and parts of southern Ukraine. They have obviously had some success over the spring and the summer, particularly in the oblast of Luhansk but they haven't taken the whole of the Donbass so far. And then we move into this third phase, which we've been moving into in the last few weeks, where the real focus is on the south, with the Ukrainians trying to push back around Kherson, around other southern cities to try and free up the Black Sea coast. And it looks like that's where the focus will be over the next month or so. But I think that's where we are now. But the big story, as I say, is very much just how well Ukraine has been able to stand up to a country whose military budget, let us not forget, is about 10 times that of its own. Obviously, support from the West has been a big part of that, and perhaps we'll come on to that. But I do think that's probably the thing that would most surprise us if you showed us six months ago where we are today. I do want to come on to that now because, and I don't mean to in any way downplay the heroic effort of Ukraine to resist this invasion, but the reality is that this has been done with Western support, which I think has also been a surprise. I personally did not expect, if you had asked me six months and a day ago, would the United States and Europe managed to stand together as much as they have in support of Ukraine, I would have said, there's no way, right? There's no way because of all the infighting within Europe anyway, about energy and about sanctions and about what policy to take toward Russia. And how, do you have to be Macron and talk to Putin for an hour every day? Or should you be like the Baltics and say, no, we're not doing that, right? Like there just seemed to be so much division. And this was following on from America's withdrawal from Afghanistan and and from all sorts of moments of tension between the American-French relationship that we've talked about on this podcast. And yet, obviously, there is much still to criticize, but, and yet, all these countries were sort of able to come together to to back Ukraine. How do you think that that happened, Jeremy? And do you think that it will, that will continue to hold? I think parts of the West surprised themselves by how much they've been able to step up and support Ukraine. I think the leading role of the US, which can't really be overstated here, contradicts what many thought and what many believed to be the case of the country after the Afghanistan withdrawal. There was a sense that the US was now on the back foot and that the extent that it had any initiative left, that would be dedicated on the Indo-Pacific. 
So I think that is very striking. And I think the, the centrality of US support for Ukraine is a big part of that story, particularly seen from here in Europe. We might be looking at a very different story six months in if it had all been left to the Europeans. But this is something that I go into in my cover feature from last week's New Statesman issue, in which I tried to sort of fit it into that broader story. You know, we've had such a turbulent few years with Trump, with the demise of the NATO mission in, in Afghanistan, with the rise of China, with China's recent woes, uh, with, of course, the pandemic. And I feel that often these stories, including the Ukraine story, get filtered into one or two boxes. The first being the West is doomed, the West is in decline, the others are taking over, or the West is back, we're back to the 1990s and all of the hubris associated with that. And what I've tried to propose in this piece is the idea that we're in an era defined by what I call Westishness. So neither the hubris of the post-Cold War era, nor a genuinely new international order with entirely new rules and entirely new systems of power, but one where, yes, the US is still by far the biggest economic, military and technological power, where the West is still the biggest and most powerful alliance going. But yes, we are also seeing elements of multipolarity and the West's room for manoeuvre is perhaps less than what it was, or at least what it was imagined to be in the decades immediately after the Cold War. And I do think that what we've seen so far of the Ukraine war and what it's shown us about the West and the support that the West has given Ukraine sort of conforms to that Westishness thesis in that it has shown that the West can deliver remarkable amounts of military and economic and political and diplomatic support, that they cannot necessarily count on the support of much of the rest of the world in doing so, that there are powers, for example, Turkey, that can play an important mediating role between the West and other powers, that technology can sometimes overwhelm brute force, as we've seen with the use of very important technologies in Ukraine, whether the Bayraktar drones from Turkey or the HIMARS from the US. It's taught us a lot about this new era. And I think, you know, it would be a fool who would claim to know exactly where we're going to be in a couple of decades' time. But I do think that the war in Ukraine has shown us a little bit the contours of what the mid-21st century will look like. You spoke about the leading role of the United States. What does it say about Europe that a war is happening in Europe against a country that has made clear that it wants to join Europe and by far the leading provider of aid, military and otherwise, is the United States? I think it speaks both of a, an element of Western strength and one of weakness. The strength is that the US still has this enormous capacity to support allies in these sorts of situations and has an enormous technological leadership. But also, and this was something we discussed at the time of the Madrid-NATO summit, the West overall is far too dependent on that leadership. It is remarkable how much more the US has done than the major European powers. By one measure, the US has given about 24 billion euros of military support to Ukraine. By contrast, the biggest European giver is the UK at about 4 billion, followed by Poland at about 2 billion. So different orders of magnitude. And that's without talking about the intelligence support, the diplomatic support that the US has, has given. And I think as we were discussing at the end of June, it does go to show that Europe is very vulnerable to political shifts in the US. You know, we're coming up to the midterms in the autumn. After that, the 2024 presidential election. It so happens that this crisis has come at a time when a sort of old school Cold War style Atlanticist sits in the White House and the Democrats have, however tenuous, a kind of control of both houses of Congress. And were that not the case, and were, for example, Donald Trump or someone like him in the White House, the next time something like this happens, I think it would play out very differently. And so I think it's shown the Europeans 
how urgent the need is for a kind of initiative from their side to develop proper defence procurement, to develop proper military technology agencies comparable with those of the US to actually create the structures needed to manage crises like these, even if not global ones, then ones in their own neighbourhood. And I think that that has been a very salutary reminder and it should give those of us who recognise that Europe needs the ability to act independently from the US, particularly given where US politics seems to be going, I think gives us a lot of grounds for concern. Katie, we've been talking about the response from Europe and and the United States and the so-called West, but obviously that is not the entire world. And one extremely important player that we've not mentioned so far really is China. You've been covering China's response, active and passive, to Russia's war in Ukraine. What have you made of it? And did you expect China to more full-throatedly support Russia in its war? I think China has walked a very consistent and a very careful line. You know, we we saw a lot of discussion around the outbreak of the war as to whether Xi Jinping had been played. Some analysts thought that because he had stood together with Putin right before the war and declared that their relationship had, had no limits, that Putin had kind of pulled the wool over his eyes and now Xi Jinping had been left standing alongside him while he waged this, this brutal war. I never bought that narrative Number one, because it was clear, you know, China has significant intelligence agencies, as do other countries. You know, we could all see as they stood together in Beijing the number of Russian troops that were massed on the border with Ukraine. I think it's entirely possible that Xi Jinping and likely Putin himself and plenty of other people besides believed that this would be a short limited operation. And if it had gone that way, if Kiev had fallen within the first week, then this would have worked in China's favor. It would have shown, you know, following on from the chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan, it would have been another sign of Western decline. It would have been the US once again standing on the sidelines as Russia redrew international borders by force. And while China did not want a war in Ukraine, because China actually had pretty decent relations with Ukraine, and it was part of their vision for the Belt and Road Initiative in Europe. So they, you know, they, they didn't want to see this conflict happening. But I can see a decision being made that if it was going to happen, then China perhaps stood to lose less than some others. But it's not surprising to me that China did not then throw its support um, full-throatedly behind Russia, that it hasn't supplied, overtly at least, direct military aid, and that it has, as far as we can tell, uh, mostly abided by international sanctions, because that is the line it has been walking for eight years now, You know, since the annexation of Crimea, which China has not um, recognized. This is the approach Beijing has taken, is to offer diplomatic support to offer economic support and certainly you know, bilateral trade between the two countries has surged, but not to put China's economy at risk, not to put Chinese companies at, at risk of international sanctions. So I think we are going to see them continue to walk that line. And in fact, they're going to hold joint military exercises with Russia beginning next week to demonstrate, well, part of what they are they they will demonstrate is that they are they are neither throwing their support fully behind and openly behind Putin, but they're also not abandoning him. So if the idea, you know, I think there was some sense that there's a perennial argument that um, it will be possible to drive a wedge um, between China and Russia. This war has shown that that relationship 
has endured a significant challenge and I think does show that China in- intends to hold that position you know, in, in the years to come. So we've been discussing the global implications of this war, of sanctions policy, and one element that relates to both that many suspect will be a challenge as the war continues is energy. Our colleague Ido Bach actually recently interviewed the Estonian foreign minister, Ormas Rentalu. Estonians, I apologize for butchering that name. And he had this to say on the challenges of energy prices. We're approaching what seems likely to be a very difficult winter in Europe. We're going to have an energy crisis, almost certainly largely engineered by Russia. We're going to have very high inflation. I think it's very, very high in Estonia, but it's high across the European Union. And of course, uh, Ukraine is still fighting. Are we approaching the most dangerous point with Ukraine where our economies suffer a great deal and there is immense pressure on European governments from populations which are going to suffer immense hardship, most likely this winter. There's immense pressure on their governments to put pressure on Ukraine to capitulate and to get the energy flowing from Russia again. Are we are we approaching the moment of maximum danger? Let's put things into the perspective. And the perspective is that, well, we could feel inconvenience, a temporary inconvenience. But what on our eyes in the middle of Europe is happening is a systematic genocide of one nation and systematic annihilation in society's capability in a consistent manner to exist and also the annihilation of the statehood. This is an attempt, clear attempt, which they do not hesitate of a Russian regime. What are we worth as a nation? Well, you had your European treaties written these principles. What are the Europe-based? What are your beliefs-based and values-based? And you betrayed these. That I don't want to see happening. So bombs are not falling into our kindergarten, into our schools, into our hospitals. These are dropping in Ukraine. And so, well, let's put things also into another dimension. In Ukraine, there is a prediction of annual inflation rate 31%, which is tremendously high. Estonia, in European continent, by inflation rate is number two. Around We are expecting an annual inflation rate around 20%, mainly because of energy resources, prices, and so on. And, uh, of course, it's painful for the society. But our people are very determined in uh, believing who we are, And in that sense, we should not give up. It means also act immediately to give us Putin clear vision that our determination and willpower has no caveats and it's going to be stronger, not weaker than his. And therefore, we need before the winter fall rise a new package of sanctions. And what is also most important, immediate delivery of these sophisticated weapon systems and ammunition, what our Ukrainian friends are desperately asking for. Okay, so that's the view from a Baltic state. Jeremy, since you are in Germany, I wanted to get the view from Berlin on this issue because there's been so much attention paid to Germany and energy and its, its historic dependence on Russian energy and what this will mean for continued support or not for Ukraine. So what's the view from Berlin? I think the point about the energy crisis is both intimately connected with the war in Ukraine, but also something that we need to treat as a separate issue, because a lot of the causes of the energy crisis Europe will be facing this winter 
predate six months ago by months or in many cases years or even decades. And of course, Germany is itself a very good example of that. It was Germany's decision, particularly in 2011, to switch off its nuclear power stations and use gas effectively as its transition fuel to a green economy that provided the dependency that's now causing it trouble. And here in Berlin, there's a kind of daily interest in how full the gas stores are. And sort of earlier this month, they were in sort of 70, 71, 72%. Now they're almost 80%. There is a sense that Germany, you know, it's going to have a difficult winter, but things perhaps won't be as uh, quite as apocalyptic as some feared. Most notably, by the way, is actually not quite how full the gas stores are, but what's driving that, namely the fact that people are managing to save gas use. And that's obviously partly a product of the fact that prices are so high, so the market's reacting, but also there are civic efforts to reduce gas use. Anyway, now that is a very, very big story. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a story that goes back decades into the past and will go forward at least a decade, maybe multiple decades into the future. The story of the transition to a low carbon economy and how the political turmoil of our times shapes that and shapes the energy flows that our economies rely on. And of course, the the war in Ukraine has influenced that. It has led to a tightness in supply. It has shown that contrary to what many, many Germans thought, gas exports from Russia are and always were fundamentally political and not just economic. But I do think that, again, looking at it from a German perspective, it would be a mistake to see them as purely one single issue. Because if we do so, you know, I think some of these more kind of gloomy predictions about a winter in which factories will have to stand still, in which energy will be rationed, lights will go out, hot water will stop flowing, by exaggerating that, or at least kind of by wallowing in the worst case scenarios on that, I worry that countries like Germany give themselves excuses not to support Ukraine over the coming months. And that, of course, is now the big question. You know, we've seen how crucial Western support is to Ukrainian resistance. Putin clearly thinks that he's playing the long game. He's waiting for the West's resolve to gradually diminish. And I think that by overstating the, the dangers of the energy crisis, which, as I say, is a bigger story, we give those who would sort of rush back to business as usual with Russia too much credit. And I think that you know, the answer is to, yes, accept that this is going to be difficult to winter, to prepare as, as well as possible for that, to move as quickly as possible to a, an energy situation in Europe where we don't rely on Russia, but at the same time, not to let it get out of perspective and to keep in mind that actually the bigger picture is what are the rules of the game in Europe? Can borders be redrawn by force? Can force prevail over rules and international order? That is far more fundamental than a temporary, however painful, energy shock in a big economy like Germany. I do think that we need to keep our eyes on that. And it speaks to, I mean, and we've all spoken about this before on this podcast, why you cannot separate energy and economic policy from geopolitics. These are because when autocrats are involved, those are one and the same. And to say, oh, no, this exists in a separate realm is, is self-delusion. There are some positive signs as well. You know, I think Putin would love us all to be quaking in our boots about the idea of a cold winter. But, you know, Europeans have been able to do deals with, you know, Norway, Algeria, other providers have been able to step up to some extent. In Germany, there will be new LNG terminals. Other parts of Europe, for example, Spain and Portugal are already very well provided with LNG. There are other sources. And I think so for us to obsess on the idea of Putin switching off and on the tap saying, warm winter, cold winter, right. um, is to really overstate the leverage he's, he's built up and in doing so to let down Ukraine, I think. 
So there's another element that came out in the last week, which is both about the war in Ukraine and is not about the war in Ukraine. I'm speaking about the, the death, the murder of Daria Dugina. Katie, can you tell us a bit about what happened? Well, let me start by saying it's extremely unclear. The basic facts that we have, and perhaps it's also just helpful to explain who Daria Dugina and her father Alexander Dugan are uh, as the background to this. So Alexander Dugan is a self-styled ultranationalist philosopher slash ideologue who has helped to popularize the idea of Eurasianism in Russia. It's not his original idea. It, it's something that, that has been around since the 1920s, but he wrote a very influential book, or at least a very popular book on the subject in 1997 um, called The Foundations of Geopolitics. And it essentially argues that Russia is a unique civilization that is destined to rule over the entire Eurasian landmass and to push back liberal Atlanticism, which is basically the United States. He has been calling for Russia to invade Ukraine for decades. He, like Putin, does not see it as a, as a real sovereign country. So it, it is more that his views have periodically aligned with the Kremlin's worldview, rather than as, as is sometimes suggested that he is, you know, the Putin whisperer, the Putin Rasputin, Putin's brain and, and, and feeding him these ideas. At, at periods, he's, he's useful to the Kremlin and then he's very high profile, like following 2014 when he's on all, all of Russian state media. At, at other times, his profile drops and he is arguably better known in, in the West than he is in Russia itself. Nevertheless, he has been, you know, a really strong cheerleader for the war in Ukraine. And I think we sometimes overlook there is this nationalist critique of the war on the right in Russia, which feels that this is not going far enough and that wants Putin to, to escalate the war, to call it a war and to declare a full mobilization in Russia. So he is very much on that wing, calling for Russia to, to go further, to do more. And his daughter, Daria Dugina, who was 29, was becoming a prominent nationalist commentator in her own right. So she is somebody who would also feature on Russian state media. She was sanctioned by the US and the UK earlier this year for her involvement with a disinformation website. So it is not clear whether she was the target of this attack, or as seems more likely, it was her father. They were both attending a cultural festival on the outskirts of Moscow on Saturday evening. They had planned to travel home together, according to family friends, but at the last moment, he got in a different car. A car bomb exploded and she was killed at the scene. What the Russian authorities have said, and I think we can take this with a truckload of salt, is that this was an attack carried out on the orders of the Ukrainian security services. They claim to have tracked an assassin who they've named as Natalia Vovk, who supposedly entered Russia driving a Mini Cooper with her 12-year-old daughter, rented an apartment in Dugina's building, trailed her, planted the bomb, and then escaped um, across the border to Estonia, and also left behind an identity card linking her with the Ukrainian National Guard and specifically the Azov Regiment. So now Ukraine and Estonia are sort of invoked in what we actually don't know is an issue that leaves Russia. And actually, we have a clip from Ido's conversation with the Estonian foreign minister on this issue, which we will play right now. If I can start with the case of someone called Natalia Vovk, she is accused by the Russian security services of murdering Daria Dugina in a car bomb. And the Russians say that she crossed into Estonia after committing the murder. 
Did someone called Natalia Vov cross into Estonia? Our clear message is one. This accusation is uh, on the issue is again, we consider it uh, in a list of provocations. We have seen from Russian side, very nearest perspective, our police uh, department does not disclose any entries to the country and we are not going to the line. The Russians would like to go to this moment. Let me put things to the perspective that just last week we got in a decade major cyber attack against the student inf- cyber infrastructure from Russia, Russian soil. Secondly, just two weeks ago, Russian former president Medvedev said that this is a mistake of laziness, basically, of uh, Russia, Estonian independence. And so this is a long line of provocations. Uh, and now we are not uh, anyhow surprised. The new one, I have uh, indeed repeated the warrant to Estonian citizens not to, to go to the Russian uh, territory and those who are making a visit there to return to Estonia. So this is a war going on by Russian side and Russia considers us as a certain particular cape of adversary as a Western community is. And we consider these, all these uh, statements, accusations as a, yeah. as a particular element of provocations. And we will not drop to the thing to go to any details in that. So this takes all of the conspiracy theory boxes for the Russian security services. It implicates Ukraine. It provides a basis if one were needed to further escalate attacks there. And it also brings in Estonia, which a, a Russian senator has said this week should face, quote, tough measures if it doesn't extradite the suspect, which, of course, it will not. I think the one thing we can be clear about is that the FSB narrative is unlikely to be true apart from anything else. They claim to have solved this within hours and are supplying an extraordinary amount of video footage of this lady driving her her Mini Cooper around. It does not seem credible that somebody who was was under such close surveillance was then able to carry out a, a bomb attack on the outskirts of the capital and then leave the country if she were really under such surveillance and had really been responsible. And Ukraine has also been absolutely vehement that this is not them. And uh, unlike previous recent attacks that we've seen behind Russian lines in Crimea, where Ukraine has not officially confirmed it, but senior officials have been quoted off the record effectively saying, yes, this was us. In this case, they have been absolutely clear that that this was not them. And it, it is difficult to see that this would have been a logical strike for them. Dugina and her father were not, you know, there there are figures who are more closely associated with the war, and this isn't an attack that undermines morale in Russia. It just it, it it's difficult to see that 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 line adds up, but it is very murky, and it is currently surrounded by a, a number of conspiracy theories. Well, Katie has a piece on this that we are going to put in the show notes. And before we move on to our next segment, I will, one, encourage you all to read that piece, and two, offer a little plug for the inaugural New States. There's no neat way to do this segue. I'm just going to do it. I'm plugging our inaugural New Statesman Positive Impact Awards. They'll be held in London on the 6th of December. It's a celebration of teams and individuals who have demonstrated leadership and created real and lasting change in business, politics, society, and the environment. The award ceremony is going to be judged by Andrew Marr and other high-profile figures. It's currently open for entries. The deadline to enter is Friday, the 2nd of September. So that's not this Friday, but the following Friday. So if you're interested in applying, Friday, the 2nd of September. 
wherever you are in the world. If you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads, the best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including the historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And with that, we are going to move to a section that we like to call You Ask you Us. Ask us. Oh, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Okay. So our question this week is from a listener who wanted to know, it's been six months, but how much longer will it be? This is referring to the war in Ukraine. Will the war be over by the end of the year? I'm going to guess that of the three of us, none of us is going to make that prediction one way or the other. Well, actually, no, I, I can't. I, I don't think it will be. Just as it wasn't over in a matter of days, people who think that it will be over in a matter of days are are probably wrong. We've seen changes in Russian strategy. We've seen changes in who seems to have the wind at their backs. But 
I would just remind listeners that Russia, if it wanted to, could end the war tomorrow and Ukraine cannot. So when the war continues, which I think it will, that will be on Russia and Russia alone. But Jeremy, Katie, what do you think? Well, I think, first of all, that's a very important caveat you make. And sometimes it gets lost, particularly in the German debate, where some of the calls for peace act as if that was a decision that was to be made purely, entirely jointly on the two sides. And I think that to stress that it is Russia that can end this war and Russia that is prosecuting this war is very important. As for Holland, how long it will last, we know that the two sides are better matched than they looked six months ago. And we know that the fighting will continue until one or both sides have reasons to want to stop it. And I think that it's very clear that obviously obviously the onus is on Russia to do so, but any sort of ceasefire would obviously need to be acceptable to Ukraine. So short of a kind of complete military defeat and collapse of the regime in Moscow. And I think obviously Putin wants to get as much as he can. This, this The war has not gone as he planned. He's not been able to overthrow the Ukrainian government. But it's very clear that the sort of medium term moves are to annex those parts of the east and south that Russia has currently taken. That clearly will be completely unacceptable to Ukraine. Zelensky said he won't sign a ceasefire or a kind of a peace deal without support from a referendum. And the Ukrainian people are very united behind the need to keep fighting for their sovereignty and their territorial integrity. So I think that an end to the conflict does not look likely this year. Obviously, an important factor is Western support for Ukraine. And and there, I think there is every reason for Western governments, particularly European ones who haven't always been pulling their weight to step up and provide Ukraine with the support needed to reestablish the sort of territorial boundaries of the 24th of February this year. But I think that the sad truth is there is the reasonable amount of evidence that what we're likely to see is a war that continues for a very long period of time, possibly with periods of ceasefire as the two sides contest the east and south of Ukraine as it stands now. And the only real chance of ending that is for the West to give Ukraine the means to overwhelmingly drive back the the Russian invaders. If I had to bet on anything now, it would probably be on a very prolonged conflict with with kind of periods of greater and lesser intensity. Yeah, I I would say that's a a fair assessment. I, I think we're in a situation where the wild swings in momentum from one side to the other have now settled on on a sort of midway point and more of a grinding war of attrition. And I think we're into a phase now where it looks impossible for either side to win. Emily's right, Russia could end the war tomorrow if it chooses, but it has demonstrated it is not able to defeat Ukraine. It is not going to be able to force a Ukrainian surrender in the near term And on the Ukrainian side, while there is very valiant fighting continuing every day and Ukraine is absolutely standing its ground and has halted more or less the the Russian offensive, it is also a very different question then to push Russia back and certainly to, to, to push Russian troops all of the way out of Ukraine. So I think we're in a situation where neither side can win, but neither side is able to, you know, certainly in Ukraine's case, which is fighting for its survival, able to lose. So I think that sets the stage for, for you know, a, a long grinding war. There are elements of, of time pressure. I think it's going to be important in the coming months, actually, in the, in, the, in the coming weeks. There has been talk in Russia of trying to hold referendums in the Russian-held territories on September 11th, which is when Russia has regional elections there. 
So I think there is an imperative on the Ukrainian side to to make sure that those take territories are not stable, I think particularly around the Kherson region, to make sure that Russia does not feel that it's in a comfortable position to be able to claim and, and annex those territories. I think also, you know, heading into this, you know, potentially quite difficult winter is important for Ukraine to continue to show that they are achieving successes, that Western military aid is making a difference, that they are still pushing, because if not, I think they could come under pressure to halt the fighting where it is. So they need to show that they can still keep up the fight. They can still keep taking this fight to Russia. So they they are under pressure to continue to press, but we are seeing them do that. You know, I think it's important to, to say, you know, the Ukrainian resistance started at the very top. You know, Zelensky set the tone for this in the early days. He and Ukrainians who are fighting all over the country right now are demonstrating every day their determination to resist Russia and the importance of continuing you know, Western both military support and economic support. So I think as we head into this less dramatic phase of the war from the outside, this is really going to be a, a crucial phase in terms of you know, keeping up international support and not turning away from what's happening in Ukraine. I think Katie gets to something important, which is that it's not just Western military aid that dictates what's happening on the battlefield, but also what's happening on the battlefield that shapes how much the West is willing to give further aid. And I know that's the view in the Zelensky administration, that that they need some concrete advances in the next weeks and months, particularly retaking Kherson would obviously be a fantastic demonstration, that then show their Western backers that there are grounds to keep giving that support, particularly as the winter begins to bite, the gas shortages become more painful, as war fatigue sets in among Western populations. And so it is a two-sided thing. The, the West needs to keep sending weapons, but Ukraine needs to show that it can achieve concrete results with them. So that's, that's I think, the dynamic we'll see playing out over the next months. Uh, much more to discuss over the coming weeks. In the meantime, thanks to all our listeners who sent in questions. And you can keep sending them to us at podcasts at newstatesman.co.uk or by tweeting at any of us. That's all the time we have for today. Join us on Monday for our interview episode with Orlando Feiges, the historian of Russia, on his new book. If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, please subscribe. And if you have already subscribed, thank you. Please also rate us five stars. It's five stars only. And leave us a nice review. It really does help. Our producer has been May Robson. Thank you again to Jeremy for coming on. And thank you for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time. 